Welcome to your 2012 July slash August edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And once again, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. So let's get to it. And now here's the question all of us need to ask ourselves. Who wants to be a speaker millionaire? All right, and we are now with Ann Warfield, CSP. Now, Ann's business, they help top executives and salespeople to influence outcomes by expanding the way they think, listen, and speak. Do I have that right, Ann? You have it right. All right, excellent. Here's the part here. We would like to kind of see what takeaways we can get for how you built your enterprise. Now, at some point, I imagine you were merely a very consistent, successful high-frequency working speaker. But you made some decisions. There was some mindset, some decisions you made about multiplying yourself or product or changing who you were pursuing that allowed you to get to the what we're calling the millionaire speaker group. We may or may not want to get exactly where you are, but we want to know what were those shifts that you made along the way that caused you to go from where you were to where you are now. So describe... I guess, what your business was like a number of years ago when you were more of a traditional speaker. I would say that um, back when I first started speaking, my mindset was in how do I improve myself on the platform? How do I get gigs, speaking engagements, and raise my fee of what they'll pay for that speaking engagement? Under that model, you're limited by time because there's only so much time you can be up on the platform and you're limited by scalability because if it's only you that they're buying, how do you scale and change that? So my big aha came in saying that I'm not just running a speaking business. What I'm running is a scalable knowledge transfer business and showing people how to increase that value of themselves and their thinking. So it's not necessarily me that they want, but it's the content that I can offer in the way that we can deliver it. Now, how did you make that leap, that decision? was? Did you have a mentor? You just got tired of being on airplanes? And what was the trigger that said, you know, I'm going to move from more of a practice to a business? Yeah. There were a couple of things. One was my mission was to get the methodology of thinking that we, we teach called outcome thinking out into the world. And they said, if I don't leap past myself, the scalability is limited. So I have to leap past and look at that. Then I looked at who out there in the marketplace is doing it that I really think has integrity on, off stage, in every aspect of their life, and that was Nita Cobain. So invested in joining his IQ group, being a part of that. At the same time, I started going to all different kinds of seminars out there. How is T.R. Ecker? doing it. What is he building that empire? How does that relate to what I'm doing? And what can we learn off of all the people out there that are scalability? So I think one of the things is stepping outside of yourself and really looking at who are people out there that are doing it in a bigger way, what makes them in a bigger way, and what aligns integrity-wise and character-wise with yourself. Because I think there's a million ways to do this business. You have to find, as Jim Cathcart once said to me, figure out the lifestyle you want, and then design the business to match that lifestyle. That's a good one. So you made that decision, you got education, you got some uh, people that you felt you could kind of follow there. What were the next steps to saying, okay, I'm gonna move from a practice 
to this business. I'm going to get my outcome content out there in a way that's not limited by me speaking. There were a couple of steps with it. One was to even realize the languaging that you use. Um, for example, when you go in and you talk about a program, you're often looking for going for the yes. What, what do they need? Yes, I can do that. Yes, I can. I actually use the mentality of going for the no. I try to figure out how we are not the fit as soon as possible, as quick as possible, and try to figure out how to eliminate us rather than get us in. All right, we're going to have to back that. <laughs> we're backing up the truck on that one. You're saying we like to get to the yes. You want to quickly as possible get to the no. Yes. Why? Because executives in the C-suite think in terms of what's my problem and how can you help me solve it. And really what they look at is what's the dollar volume of the pain of that problem. I want to get to that discussion as quick as possible. If we're not the right one to solve that, I would rather be able to say no and flip them to who would be. So I don't ever listen for what is the yes that I'm a perfect fit. I look for what are all the things that could derail this, stop this, block this, and let's have all of that conversation and get to that right away. What it does is it puts me in a mind frame of listening completely different. Because I'm not listening for how do I fit, I'm listening for all the things that can make it not align and connect. That gets them in a deeper conversation, it gets them to reveal things, there's no pressure, I'm not trying to sell them in anything, I'm trying to figure out, well, is this gonna work or is it not? You know, is one program even gonna get you the results that you want if you've had this problem for 10 years in your organization? What makes you think coming in and having someone for one day even is gonna change mindsets your people have had for the last 10 years? How realistic is that? What are you going to do to support this afterwards? Why is this a big problem? What has it caused you in dollars and cents? And because I'm not pushing to be the one, I'm saying right up front, I'm not sure that we even are fit. So let's even talk about what it is you want to accomplish. And I'll be the first one to pull out and tell you if we're not the fit. That causes the conversation to go much deeper, much faster, higher trust level. And you do have to be incredibly willing if you aren't the right fit to pull out. So I'll tell them sometimes, I know you called me for this and I see what you're wanting to do here, but as I'm listening to you, that's really not what you're wanting. This is really what you're needing over here and here's gonna be a better fit for you and then once you do that, we can come in here. And we find that then they do. They, they go and take care of this, then they bring us in at the next step because that trust has been built. Or do they go out of their way to sell themselves to you? You know, that does often happen. And then they often start saying, well, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. Maybe that's not what I want to do right now. Maybe I do want to do this over here. Um, so it gets the dialogue and the conversation at the level of where the C-suite plays. And, and that is the other thing I would say was the big shift. There's a difference when you're looking at, um, for example, you know you're in the one dialogue of the gigs when they say to you, what are the learning objectives? That we're going to get can you send us an outline of what you're going to talk about that's all in terms of looking at things transactionally transformationally is what are the results we want to achieve and what's the pain that's causing those um, things to happen right now what's the cost to us for those happening and what's going to happen if we don't fix those so here's what i'm really hearing that there's transactional language and there's transformational language and conversations and a, and a key shift is making sure that you talk in the language of transformation absolutely and that's the language that doesn't have the dollar symbols attached to it the other language does because now they're going to look transactionally i could bring you in i could bring someone else in what's really the real difference in there 
So we look to have the conversation at that transformational level, um, which usually requires speaking to the high-level executives. Once you got this and you started speaking in these terms here, was this still you or when did you decide I need to multiply me? Uh, Pretty early on started saying, how do we multiply me? So we looked at different options with doing it. One, we started looking at that instead of delivering programs, we created a system. And the system's a one to three year system, depending on what they're trying to accomplish. And here's how we bring them through this system. Then I stepped back and looked at the programs that we do deliver and everything that we go through. How do I take within that and take the content stuff that does have to be delivered a certain way and be able to have that replicated by others? Found that was a little bit trickier doing with just live. So what I did is created video clips on key things. So all of our programs have video embedded as well as live so that the expert that's working with a group can focus not just on delivering the content, but instead focusing on interpreting the content for that group specifically with their needs. So it changes the role that they have in the organization. And we're finding that the results with it are phenomenal. So when a client buys into your one to three year program and you're giving them the system, the process here, what, what are the components? Is this, you know, uh, training, on-demand learning, products, webinars? What, what, what is the mix of services that they receive when they say, you know, Anne, we're in it to win it here. We're, we're going to go for the whole three-year package. Um, with it, they have a certain number of programs that are done. Live, you say programs, uh, speeches or training classes? Two, uh, training classes. They're okay. usually done over a two-day period, two to three days. Then along with that, they get weekly video clips that are exercising their brain to make these changes because outcome thinking is about shifting the brain from the defense to the offense. So that's an exercise that your brain has to continually do. So we have that built in. That's got an executive corner where their executive can give messages every quarter to their group all tied in. They can rank the videos. They can reply. They can click a button and and email us with anything, ask any question. We build and embed videos that are designed just for that group. So these are customized videos and there's an interactive component. Yep. And then they also have laser coaching where every month they get their time, they get to call in. Here's what's happening. Here's how I'm fixing it. You know, what can I do Um, so that we can constantly have those touch points with them on how everything's happening. Then we have discussions with the executives. How are you implementing it in your organization? What's working? What's not working? What do you need to modify and change? How do you build this? And the premise that I always come from is not how do I deliver a program, but how do we deliver a system that's going to give them the solution that they need that's going to become embedded culturally into their culture and their language so that they speak it, feel it, taste it, touch it. Because if their executives are walking into the room and they're using that languaging and using that, that's going to just keep spiraling it and embedding it into the organization. Now, uh, for pricing, and of course we're not going to get in specifics because that would be wrong to do that. But I'm presuming that you're now in six-figure solutions. Mm-hmm. This is the, the neighborhood where these type of things play. Correct. And that's how you get to million-dollar solutions. Correct. And I think um, the other part, Brian, is that you, you flip your brain from looking at the client and looking at this speaking engagement. So let, let's just say that you're a $10,000 speaking engagement person. And an opportunity comes up and you say, it's a $10,000 speaking engagement. What products can I get them to buy? What books can I get them to buy to get this maybe from 10,000 to 15,000? 
what we do is we look at it and say, what are they trying to solve? What is this problem costing them? And then we say, if we're able to come in and help them solve this problem and eliminate for them, what's a potential upside for them? And then when you look at that and you look at, at that prorated against the cost, the cost becomes irrelevant to them. So we never listen for the, the deal. We look at the lifetime opportunity of this client. So where are they coming in? And if we keep them for a lifetime, what is the value of this client over a lifetime rather than over an engagement? All right. So I imagine once you have that mindset and you have that structure in place, then it's really a matter of scalability to continue to grow it. So here's a question. Now that you've been doing this for a while and you've had this, what's cutting edge for you? What's next? When you're at this enterprise level, now what are you looking at to drive your business forward? We are now looking at how to even take the scalability and do it where organizations can massively get it out because right now we're designed really at that high level executive. So they're putting in groups of anywhere from 50 to 350 people through. Now we're looking at it, for example, we're working with a client that has over 60,000 people. How do you get it out to 60,000? What do you do to bring down? How, what parts need to be in there? How do things get done online? How can they be done globally? And that's the next shift that we're looking at. And maybe next year on VUE, we'll be talking to you about that. All right, now let's imagine that we're in some sort of weird speaking jazz club here. And we've, we've invited Mike Staver, CSP, uh, to kind of come in and start kind of just riff it. Just, no, there's no prepared questions. There are no prepared remarks. Trust me, he's not prepared for this. Um, I'm just asking him, you, you, Mike, you have been in the coaching business forever, uh, basically. Uh, there was Moses, then there was you in the coaching side of things. And this is back when executives used to be, okay, uh, we've hired a coach for you, which means that you're going to be fired probably within 90 days. We're uh, working on the paperwork, so could you talk to this guy while we get it done? Because we ostensibly helped you, you can't sue us. So you went from that to now it's an honor to be coached. It's, it's, it's like, okay, you are now worthy of being a coach. So you've gone through this whole gauntlet here. And as a speaker, you have lived that speaker-coach blend. What's the what's the what's the state of the union on the speaker coach blend? Yeah, I, uh, I I really think that the coaching industry as a whole um, has gotten very popular, and as a result of that, has gotten very diluted. And the reason it's gotten diluted is because it's very trendy to call yourself a coach now. Oh, I do a lot of coaching. Well, really, what does that mean? What does that really mean? I mean, does that just mean that you're doing your presentation on the telephone for forty five minutes a week? Or what does that actually look like? And I think that, the, that, that what we have to be very careful about is that if we're going to call ourselves a coach, that we understand that what that basically is this. We're messing with someone's life. That's what we're doing. We are, we are screwing around with somebody's life. And what we have to be able to understand is that's a gift. And what we need to do is believe that they have the answers already. We do not have the answers. The difference, I think, between a good coach and a mediocre coach or a good coaching practice is the philosophy I bring to it. And I see, not I bring to it, but that the coach brings to it. And I think that we live in a world now where people want to hang coach on themselves like they want to, anything trendy, I'm a coach, I'm a coach, I'm a coach. Well, really, are you? What is that? I mean, if you look at a coach, they observe behavior and they illuminate. I think that's what great coaches do. We do two things. We, we illuminate and we ask. That's what we do. And that so many don't. So many, I think, just take their content, put it in a different kind of box, and then teach. Well, that's not coaching. Well, let me, let me push on that because 
it's fun. All right. Uh, and because you can. Because I can. And you're the host. There we go. So when I, when I think of, of, of coaching, if I were to hire a coach, or let's, okay, let's say I'm an NSA member and I'm a rising star in speaking. It's like I'm, I'm doing better and I'm now realizing that I need to up my game on, on the platform here. So I would say I want a speaker coach. And so I would contact someone like Max Dixon or something like that. I would say, Max, you know, help, you know, help me tell my stories better. Help me. Da, da, da. I'm not thinking that I have the answers within. So in other words, if, if I was hiring a Max Dixon, am I hiring him to be a coach or I'm really hiring him to be a consultant? In other words, for your definition, help me understand the difference between I'm hiring someone to help me achieve and do something versus hiring someone to help illuminate so that I can realize this. Yeah, so let's play that out a little bit. You come to, to let's say you come to me and okay. you say, I want to be a better speaker. My first question, I think a coach would ask this question, why? Why do you want to be a better speaker? And what makes you think you want to be a better speaker? And what makes you think you're already not a good enough speaker? Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it, it asks the person being coached to start owning and thinking it through. I think, we, I think what great coaches do is help people think differently. And then do differently. I mean, certainly, I have a, a pretty uh, successful coaching practice. And I don't always just pontificate at you know the top of the mountain or... or meditate at the top of the mountain. There are times I have to be very directive and say, try this, try that, try this. I, I think the point is, though, that really great coaching says, I don't necessarily think the assumptions you're making about your speaking um, are completely w- all the way thought out. And so let's really start looking at what the underlying belief systems are and why you think you need me to help you be a better speaker or tell better what makes you think that. Mm-hmm. And as I start to ask you those questions, you're going to most likely start uncovering what the bigger, deeper, m- more specific issue is that I can then help you with more effectively. If you come to me and say, help me tell better stories, and I go and help you tell better stories, and you go out and tell a great story and you can't get rebooked, I didn't coach you. I just taught you how to tell better stories. And it could be that it isn't that you need to be taught better stories. You just might need to build rapport better or you might need to do something different. So I think great coaches diagnose really well. And I think great teachers, you come to class, you're here to learn to tell a better story. I will teach you how to tell a better story. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think what a coach does is diagnose what the underlying issues are and then goes for what those are. So it really seems like we're having multiple definitions of coaching. And perhaps that's the dilution that you're talking about because there's what I would characterize what you're saying is you're, you're, you're coaching for insights. You're coaching for being a diagnostician. You're helping them get to what I call the Scooby-Doo moment. It's like they, they've now had this major aha, and it's the aha changes what they believe about themselves, which opens up new possibilities or revised directions. Which is then the starting point for what will really help you do. Uh, I'll give you an example. A regional vice president just recently was sentenced to be coached by me. Okay. By the CEO. They come to me and I say, what's, the, what's your understanding of why we're having this relationship? Because I have a hard time getting along with people. Who told you that, Bill? Do you believe them? No. Well, then what do you think we're having this conversation for? Well, people just don't understand me. Do you find that to be a trend a lot in your life? Yes, I do. Really? Why is that, do you think? So now I don't care what the CEO says. This is the part say. where they stab you with a pen? I am on the phone. Okay, which that's is probably a, safer. Key. Yes. Okay. And then they say... Um, Blah, 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 blah. And then we go down that path. Now, interestingly enough, where it went with this client was, they don't get along with people. They're kind of a jerk. That's the Uh truth about them. But 
I think it's a difference in compliance and commitment. If you can get somebody to understand it themselves and own it themselves, then I can give them a lot of insight and in teaching. Now, don't get me wrong. It isn't all about the diagnosis and the insight. I just think that a great coach believes more in their client than they believe in themselves. All right, welcome to a special segment on VUE I'm calling Tough Love with Connie Podesta, CSPCPAE. She is, besides being, of course, an incredible speaker, she is, I guess you could best say, an organizational therapist, which I believe means that she does with companies what other therapists would do with a family, only for slightly better fees. <laughs> so I've heard uh, many people tell me that you are great at getting your fee. Oh, well, that's true. Um, I always like to ask a client, you know, when they say they don't have my fee, I always ask them, what's your total speaker budget? You know, because I'm never interested in my fee. Speakers get hung up on the fee they have for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to know their whole budget. Well, that's an awesome and question. So so you I go to them and you say, well, yeah. what's your total speaker budget? Yeah. And, and do then, they just spill, Connie? Well, Connie, it's this. Oh, usually, yes, because I go, well, you know, I know it must be tough. And I said, what what do you have for the total speaker budget? And, yeah, they'll always say it. Let's say they say, uh, oh, we, we only have 25000 for the whole thing. Well, my mind immediately goes, I want it all. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, don't want the yes. little, I don't want the little part you set aside for, quote, the keynote. Like, right. So my mind's working like, Wow, God, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get it all, and so once you know what they have to work with, then then you can be you can explore, you can add, you can change, you you know you can say things like, well, you know you're gonna have a keynote and you're gonna have two sets of breakouts and another two sets in the afternoon. I mean, even if you get these people for free or pay them a thousand, you've got the cost of the room and you've got the AV and you know that that's all gonna come to another twelve thousand and you know you just. You, you give them the pain, and plus, oh my goodness, you're going to have 12 breakout speakers to worry about? Why don't you just forget the set of breakout speakers? Give me a two-hour keynote. You can eliminate four of your speakers, four rooms, more hassle for you. You go get a cup of coffee, stand in the back of the room. I'll take over. No worries. You're in good hands. So you're using your kind of like Jedi mind tricks. Yeah. Yes. These are not the breakout presenters you want. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. I even yeah. say, do you want a speaker that charges what I do, or do you want $4,000 free breakout speakers? You know, whatever it is. And most of them will always give up the first set of breakouts. What's it mean to me? I speak 50 minutes more. So what? If I can keep my fee in an economy where everyone's losing their job, and all I have to do is hang around for 50 minutes more, sometimes I'll hang around for an hour and a half more and, and say, you know, what are you doing after lunch? Oh, it's so boring. It's terrible. I said, do you go right into breakouts? Yeah. I said, oh my God, aren't they falling asleep? Yeah. Okay. You know what? I'll hang around an hour and a half. I'll do a half hour after lunch. I'll get them all livened up. We'll do some interaction. We'll do some fun. I'll throw it in. If you can do the keynote at my fee, we'll throw it in. And then I'll even introduce your afternoon and get them all charged up. You know, and what's interesting is once you find this total budget and you start saying, well, you know, I come in, I'll introduce people, we'll tie it together. Uh, they'll say, well, what about the closing? If you've emceed it all, you know, mm-hmm. will you do the closing? I say, well, I can't within that fee. Well, I think we could get some more. So it's, it's mm-hmm. really interesting that... This whole idea of added value, you know, I know speakers that charge more to do a breakout. But, yeah, but to they, be fair, were you doing that before? Does before what I'm hearing you saying oh, no, is no, that no. you're totally right. If yeah, yeah. I were getting my fee for the breakout, I wouldn't be throwing in anything for right. free. Okay, okay. Just to be clear. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not dumb here. Well, but, I didn't think you were. Right. Okay, but I'm talking about a situation yeah, where we find ourselves now. Rather than reduce your fee, 
For me, the option was reduce my fee, stick with the economy, or keep my fee, and as long as I'm there, figure out ways to add more value so that they felt my fee was more worth it. And it has not bothered me to come in a little early or stay and do an extra breakout. In fact, I'll be honest, I find the breakouts sometimes get me more spinoff than anything. The keynote, I'm interactive, I'm fun, I'm making everybody laugh. You know, I'm doing the keynote mm-hmm. type of stuff. There's definitely a powerful quote message, you know, woven in there. We've customized, we've done all the right things. But the breakout, I mean, I'm kind of back into kind of adding that on because in that breakout, when I have top senior leaders, and that's who I offer to do the breakout for. I said, mm-hmm. tell you what, you want to bring all your top senior leadership in, I'll do a free breakout. So I make sure that in my breakout, I'm getting who I want in that breakout. And you have some rights to say when you're the one giving sure. it for nothing. Boy, if you can get that top se- senior leadership team in there and you can talk to them about, you know, if I had all of your customers, if I was able to talk to all your regions, if I were to come into each of your stores and to work with, here's some of the messages I would give then all of a sudden they're like, can, can you do all of our stores? Sure. <laughs> can you talk to all of our people? He said, let me see. Yes. I have found that it's really been kind of an interesting growth pattern for me to figure out how to uh, how to be more creative in getting my fee. All know? right. So let's, let's ask a numbers question without revealing things that would cause the FTC to you know put me in, in jail here. So, so this response, how has your last year been then? Great. With- Great. Like great. great with a capital yeah. G. Yeah, and I know. And you NSA know, I great. hate to see that because an yeah. NSA great could go anywhere from I've only had one job, but I'm not going to let you know. I sure. mean, I know we have the BS meter here, but um, I would say my business was cut by about 20%. Mm-hmm. But I'm making more money. And the reason why is because since I've added this MCing and I've added the auctions and I've started adding <laughs> and then I end up getting to pay more than my fee, it's interesting that I'm now getting MC jobs that are hiring me for two and three days or MC jobs that are hiring me now to come back and do the closing or, you know. And so, yes, my number of jobs has dropped, but my ability to make more at each event because I've been more creative has increased. Hey everybody, it's David Newman with another segment of Point Counterpoint. Well, actually, this one might more accurately be called Point Point Point, because Brian asked me to share some rapid-fire marketing insights to close out our year of working together on VOE. Here are 16 or so points I'd like to leave you with so you can think about what fits best for your business. These will help you generate more leads better prospects, and bigger sales. One, professional speaker is a skill set and not a job description. Don't get stuck on one delivery mechanism over another. At the end of the day, you'll be paid to deliver value in the ways that your prospects want and need. Learn to listen to your buyers and create investable opportunities based on what you hear. Number two, too much ego will kill your talent. Not enough will kill your potential. Three, don't confuse trusted advisor marketing with direct marketing. One is about making a sale today, and the other is about making sales for many years to come. Four, if you're tired of starting over, stop giving up. Five, buyers have changed the way they buy. Have you changed the way you sell? Spam, ads, and shouting are nowhere near as effective as they used to be. If you focus on creating value and solving problems, you'll have no problem selling. 6. Be a lamp, 
or a lifeboat, or a ladder. 7. Articulate your fabulousness. If you can't talk intelligently and succinctly about what you do and the outcomes of your work, you'll have a hard time getting buyers to invest. 8. Visibility plus credibility equals buyability. Be a ready and relevant resource. That's the key to being invited to perform great work at good fees. 9. It never gets easier. You just get better. 10. Experts win on value. Generalists die on price. Position yourself as a profitable investment, not an overhead expense. 11. Don't fall into the same old lame old trap. If you look like, sound like, and feel like everyone else that does what you do, you're not safe. You're dead. The market doesn't commoditize speakers. Speakers do. 12. What are you designed to cure? Answer this one question, and you'll create a breakthrough in your business. 13. My friend Alan Zimmerman, CSP, CPAE, says, Your business comes from your business. What can you do to get back in touch with folks who already know you and love you and have hired you in the past? 14. The three keys to your success in achieving anything you desire are enthusiasm, expertise, and creativity. Hint, you can outsource the last two. 15. NSA Minnesota past president Michael Roby says that sales is hunting and marketing is farming. You have to do both to eat well, and your business will suffer if you do too much of one and not enough of the other. 16. You have a dream, a secret project, something you can't stop thinking about. Maybe it's about sailing around the world or opening a bookstore or starting a movement or supporting a special cause. Here's the bottom line. You are a perishable item. As my friend Terry Hawkins, CSP, says, there are only two times, now and too late. If you've been waiting for a sign, this is it. Go. Right now. Do it. Thanks for a great year of point-counterpoint on VOE. You rock. And don't you ever forget it. All right, next up on VOE, The Journey. Through a candid interview, we take a sneak peek into the ongoing journey of a successful speaker. Now, the goal is to reveal the intentional or reactive big shifts that are successfully building their business. And this month's big shifter is none other than Shep Hyken. Now, if you don't know Shep, then I don't know why, but uh, you should know Shep because he is a Wall Street and New York Times best-selling author. He is basically in the world of customer service, and he's been doing this for about a quarter century. And if you're still successful after a quarter century, you've got some cred, and we want to know what's the deal. So, Shep, customer service world, could you have chosen a category that was more oversaturated? I, you know what? I love it. It's just, you know, I love competing against people all the time, having to deal with the pricing issues. It's like my favorite thing. Let the client beat me down. Perfect. You're, so you're kind <laughs> of like a positioning masochist no. here. So okay. let's talk about it from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I actually started back in 1983. I started my business. And it wasn't until 1986 that I really focused on this one topic of customer service. And if you'll remember back in 86, 
there probably weren't as many people talking about customer service as there are today. Yes. Uh, customer service is easy to get into because everybody understands it. And of course, I understood it because growing up at, in my regular business or my regular jobs, I had summer jobs. And actually, I did have a business when I was 12 years old. But in all of these jobs, there was an element of customer service. You just didn't know it was called customer service. Okay. Now, you know, I have to ask you, what was your job when you were 12? Well, I was a magician. And I guess I still am. A okay. magician. A magician. Uh, I started my birthday party business uh, when I was 12 years old. Well, that really beats mowing lawns. <laughs> it's a th- and it was a thriving birthday party business. A thriving business. birthday party yeah, business. Yeah, to the point where... Uh, you know, sometimes six, seven, eight, ten shows a week. Uh, my mom said, I can't drive you everywhere. We had to hire a driver. It was a high school kid, paid him $5 for every show that I did. But it was uh, quite a good business, you know. And So you were more successful at 12 than most speakers. So you had like 10 gigs a week and your own driver. Right, right. That and you were paying under the table. <laughs> the, the amazing part was it, when I looked at how much money was being made, uh, and I don't say this because I, I mean, it's kind of weird that I was making more than my teachers uh, in school. That's wrong, but yet so right at the same time. <laughs> and what was also really cool is that my mom made me take a summer job, regardless of how successful I was. I, I worked in gas stations. I worked as a janitor and maintenance guy at a building. At age 16, I worked on a towboat one summer, which is the all-time worst job I ever had, but it balanced out with the all-time best job I ever had because at age 16, I was also doing comedy and magic at the Playboy Clubs, which is, that's an unbelievable job for a 16-year-old young man. Unbelievable. I, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> All right, so, so you got some fascinating training for your future speaking career, which perhaps you didn't even know. So, so 83, you're... Are you kind of like the jack of all trades? Give me an audience and I'll speak. Well, what pretty, were you doing in 83? Pretty much. 83, I'd been out of college uh, less than a year, didn't have a job, looking around for something to do. I went and saw two speakers, Zig Ziglar and Tom Hopkins, on the same night. Unbelievable evening. It made me feel like I could do anything. And I thought about it and I said, I could probably even do that. <laughs> I had the entertainment background, mm-hmm. uh, had a little business background and, and having all these jobs. So I wrote a speech. It was a motivational rah-rah, fire em up kind of speech. And... I realized in a short period of time, content was important to put into the speech. Mm -hmm. It it was more of a motivational magic show. So I started to research, study, interview, whatever I could get my hands on, I read. And I read a book in 1986 or so called Moments of Truth, titled Moments of Truth by Jan Carlson. And that book, I said, that's what I, I love. That is it. That is everything I've ever believed even as a teenager with these magic shows. And my parents taught me some great lessons and great lessons that I still use today. I actually run my business on the principles of what my parents taught me when I was even younger than 12. As soon as I could learn how to write, uh, my parents used to make me do something, which was uh, when somebody did something nice, what do you do? Send a thank you note. Send a thank you note. And it was a lifelong principle of just do the right thing, show people you appreciate them. So at age 12, when I came home from my first birthday party, magic show, I'm sitting around the table, mom, dad, my brother, and my sister. And at the end of the evening, I'm telling them about the magic show. And, and my mom says, what are you going to do now? And I go, what do you mean, what am I going to do now? And she says, go write a thank you note. Oh, great idea. And then my dad gave me a few other tips. Like, you should call them a week before the show so they know you're going to come. I mean, we do speeches, right? Sure. We call them a week before so to let them know that we're going to show up and we're going to be there. We're still alive. I show up early. I did the best job I could. I stayed a little late. 
and my dad gave me that idea, show up early, stay up late, extra value for the client or the customer or the mom and dad or the birthday mm-hmm. party. But that's what we do today. I mean, it's a whole lot better than showing up late and making up for it by leaving a little early, which I've seen people do. So here's the question. Uh, are your parents still with us? Uh, my mom is. Okay, so Mrs. Hyken, good job. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the, the thank you note after the, the party, okay, mm-hmm. and then the follow-up call, which my dad was in sales he owned his own business, but he was a salesman. Really, at the end of the day, he could sell anything to anybody. And he said, follow up a week afterwards, thank them again, make sure you do a good job, and ask them if little Johnny has a brother or sister that also has a party. Referrals, ask exactly. for the business. Exactly. So actually, we're gonna stop this interview now. We're gonna have your mom come on and she's gonna do the rest. Okay. Because I think this is applicable. Whoa, hold on. It's confession time. This interview with Shep has actually been the setup for a new one-time-only feature I'm calling VOE Extended Edition. As many of you know, July-slash-August is actually a combo month for VOE. That means you receive just one CD to keep you mentally occupied until the first week of September. I know. And that's been the case since back when VOE came to you on cassettes. But not this year. More than 10 interviews are exclusively available online at the NSA VOE Facebook page. First, you'll get to hear the entire Shep Hyken Journey interview, chock full of insights you can use for your business growth. And come on, you don't want to disappoint Shep's mom. Check it out. You'll also hear Jill Lublin give you specific PR tactics. Rory Vaden share his story. Ed Rigsby explain how to get booked through association articles. Steve Siebold revealing the secrets of the NSA Millionaires Group. And Patricia Fripp weigh in with a solo point counterpoint. And oh, so much more exclusive content. All you need to do is first finish listening to this CD, and then whenever you feel the absence of VOE from your life, just pop on over to Facebook with your favorite browser and type in NSA VOE. And then bam, VOE Extended Edition is there for you. All right, we are here with Max Dixon. Now, longtime members of NSA best know Max as a presentation coach. And without naming names, Max has coached a lot of names you would know. Of course, he is also a speaker, facilitator, and keynoter. For 31 years, he was an actor and director and taught acting, movement, pantomime, diction, voice, and even stage combat. He founded the Black Theater Workshop at Indiana University and taught in the elite professional actor training program in the School of Drama at the University of Washington. Now, Max, we'll exclusively focus today on the coaching side of things. So what are we going to be talking about today? Gestures, Brian. Gestures, Brian, you say. Yes. You, you do realize, Max, this is an audio program. I know. I know, indeed. Okay. So gesture. Okay, we'll go with that. So, Max, when I think of gestures and I think of kind of like the trends in recent years, I've heard a lot of speakers talk about, you know, just be natural. Don't be over-rehearsed. Don't try and program out everything that you do. You know, just, just be yourself on stage and don't worry about that body language. Uh, you're shaking your head. You're scrunching your face here. I'm sensing you have a contrary point of view. What, what, what do you think about people who say, just, just be yourself? Well, they may be nice people, but I think it's kind of silly to say that. Well, it's nice that you said they were nice people. <laughs> okay, it's silly. What's silly? Because gestures, if they're appropriate, they can really strengthen your message. But if they're sharp, jerky, jabbing gestures, that's fun to say. 
then they will get in the way of your message, and and the learning brain will think it's a threat. And a so threat. Will, what do you yeah. mean it's a threat? The people that are listening, they look to see something that that's friendly, that's appropriate for them to listen to. And when they see the hands poke the air and, and, and jerk around like that a lot, it keeps them from relaxing and really receiving the message fully. What would be a category of gestures that we could actually learn to use more effectively? I like to talk to my uh, clients, people I'm coaching, about let's see what gestures we can have that are content-specific. Content-specific. What, what does content-specific mean? Where the gesture illustrates something specific that you just said. Like, uh, I tell you, we, we started feeling uncomfortable, and so we got out of there as fast as we could. What if your hand just sweeps the air in front of you and indicates fast? Or it was wonderful when uh, when uh, Ralph, our, our, our neighborhood boy, he was about three years old, and he'd come over and he'd say, Max, what are you doing today? I'd put my hand out and I'd show how tall Ralphie was. He was he was so cute. He was like that. So you're saying that. So when you when you're saying now, little Ralphie, as you're saying that, you just naturally as put I say out your that, hand, I put out my hand. He's about three and a half feet tall. <laughs> about three and a half feet tall. It, but that indicates something specific that the audience can get a picture in their mind. Or if you know. Have you ever seen a parent kind of abuse their kid? Doesn't that make you angry? What if you made a fist like that? Um, and, and, and that would be a content-specific gesture that would say how angry it would make you when you see somebody abusing somebody, something like that. Uh, so two things I think the listeners in VUE land might be thinking. One is, Max, I get how by having a physical visual cue that helps tell the story because I'm sure all great storytellers do things like that. But the second thing is, gosh, I don't think I naturally do that, Max. And although I see the ah, wisdom of that, yeah. am I going to look dorky doing that? Here's, here's the thing to do. My philosophy of a single, simple, doable thing. What's one thing I could do? If you just work with that whole general concept, that's too much. But say, okay, where in my speech do I say something that has to do with the shape of something or the distance of something or the speed of something? Anything that can be described and find one place where I could use a gesture to indicate height, shape, speed, something like that. And that helps the audience do what they want to do, and it gives you a plan of action that you can actually handle. One place, one place to do it. And then in another week or another time, you might add one or two more. So I, I shouldn't go to my speech and said, Max, I've now identified 27 different spots here, and I'm going to do all of them in my next speech, and then be a laughingstock in front of everybody. Not unless you're a super-duper member of Mensa, perhaps. Okay, I, can stuff I like am that. not. I'm okay. not either. All right. Bill Staten is, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Max, so that was content-specific. That's uh, one category of gestures that we can improve upon. What's, what's another category of gestures? Well, I like to suggest that you find one place. This is a plan of action. Mm -hmm. or a single, simple, doable thing. To have a gesture that is time-sustaining. Time sustaining. Time sustaining. In other words, instead of a quick, sharp, jerky gesture, how about a gesture that does take some time? Now, some of the things I've said in relation to content specific could be time sustaining. I remember once when I first looked out a window in the Rocky Mountains and saw the Continental Divide and how it swept as far as I could see. Now, it might be appropriate for you to have a gesture that takes some time and kind of draws the distance of that vision out. For those of you who can't see this, which would be everyone except me, Max is kind of <laughs> you, so you put your hand kind of at one shoulder and you kind of straighten it out almost at eye level, and it kind of did almost like a 180 type of uh, yeah, turn with your hand, yeah. thus, I'm sure, indicating the, beautiful, vis the vistage beautiful before Beautiful job you. of explaining, yes. And that took about like three, four seconds to do that. 
Yes. The key here is, is the gesture appropriate to communicate the message the way you want to communicate it to the audience and the way the audience will receive it and hear it as valuable, something that can open up their world of possibilities a little bit more. All right, so give us one more. What would be one more category of gestures that we could understand and perhaps work on? Well, another one that I like to mention, and that is simply space sculpting. Space sculpting. Yeah. If you'll watch a speaker, any gesture they have, well, it's in a straight line. It's a chopper jab, or maybe it's just extending it. But if you could have some curve or some arc in a gesture, it softens it. And it can help soften your presence in relation to the audience, make you more acceptable. Uh, it might just be one hand curving and saying, you know, I began to see a little bit more of this, and I'm just making this up right now, mm-hmm. but you can do it on your own quite easily. One place where you might have some sculpting arc curve, a soft movement rather than a sharp line. And Max is making kind of a gesture, but rather than having it be like his arm just goes straight, straight out, he's making a like a half circle, like curving motion. So you're saying that curving shapes is what you mean by space sculpting. Exactly. You know, it's fascinating. It reminds me in the uh, mid 90s, I for a couple of years, I took martial arts and I took Kung Fu and they were contrasting the Kung Fu style versus karate. And they said karate is very linear. Punch, chop, kick, everything was straight forward, took, 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 took. And then in the type of style of Kung Fu I was taking, it had very much more sweeping, curving lines. Yes. And they were saying that was the, the big difference. And, and I used to teach my actors Tai Chi because there was more sweeping gesture in that and more curve. So how do you think uh, the audience's brains react to more curving motions? What is it about carving, or, or you said sculpting, yeah. space sculpting, that the audiences unconsciously like that? Suddenness and rigidity kind of militate against rapport. In other words, their body starts to get more totally enrolled in sending the message. It's beautiful to see when that happens. All right, so content-specific, time-sustaining gestures, and space sculpting with curves. So once we've applied one thing, we've now opened ourselves up for natural expressions that are more appropriate and aligned with our message. Bingo. And now we're back with Building the Biz. And with us is Patrick Donadio, MBA, CSP, and MCC. Lots of impressive initials here. Basically, your deal is you help uh, people and organizations improve communications, increase profits, deepen relationships, and boost performance. So did I get that right? Exactly. Because I read it from your website. That's so. perfect. Now, you mainly accomplish that through presentations and through one-on-one business coaching. Exactly. All right. So here's what you're going to be talking to us about. You're going to be talking to us about how to achieve or build more local business. Yes. Now, before you do that, I, that was just to let us know where you're going. We first want to understand more about your current business model. So my right now current model looks like this, about 40 to 50 percent coaching, about 40 percent training, and maybe 20, something like that, keynote. You're doing this, living the dream of successful local emphasis to your business. Yes. Now we want you to share, how the heck can we do that with our business? Because that didn't happen by magic. You chose, you, you chose to make that transition. Yes. And that's the great thing about our business, Brian. You know, we're in charge. Here's the secret. I read this book years ago by Dr. David Campbell. If you don't know where you're going, you probably end up someplace else. People say to me, well, there's no local business in my marketplace. I can't do that. I'm only doing keynotes. There's no local business. You know what? If you keep saying that, guess what? There's no local business. So local, let me define local for people right now. Local is whatever you want it to be. It could be a 30-minute radius. 
90 minute radius, could be three hour radius. You know, so if you say, well, I don't live in the capital of a city like Columbus, Ohio, there's no big corporations in my marketplace. Are there some three hours from you? See, so local, don't just think it means in your own backyard, but it, it's anywhere you can go and get to in a day and not get on a plane and be home with your family, which is, again, one of my models is I want to be with my kids. I got teenagers. I know they're going to college soon. And oh, I start, when they want you and with they, them okay, the they whole can't wait, time. Oh, yeah. They're going, Daddy's on the road. Yay! Can I get your car? Yeah. <laughs> Drive me to the airport. Okay, you have it. Okay, now I have a target. What are the things I need to think about, be motivated to? What do I do now? Take out a piece of paper and say, okay, for example, in my marketplace, I said, I make a wish list. Nationwide Insurance, love the work there. Deloitte, love the work there. American Electric Power, love the work there. You know, who do you think you can do work for? And you start the process. Now, is this just putting down company names? Yeah, just put down company names. Okay, and check online and say, what are the decent-sized organizations that are in my area within this, whatever local is for you? Exactly. So, you know, have a target list is what I'm trying so to this say. Is the, your, this is your wish list of vocational yeah. targets. I don't know if I can get to work with them, but I just say to me, gee, who would it be that I'd love to work with who's locally that could hire me based okay. on my, my marketplace? Now, when you were mainly doing national work and then you yes. decided to make the transition to local work, is that a process that you used where you said, okay, here are the national type of clients, being this particular industry or this typical type uh, of client? Did you just say, okay, who is most like that locally? Yes, I call it the uh, vertical horizontal process. So, for example, it works anyway. I- I'm speaking at a national conference or an international conference, and I say to myself, wow, do they have a local chapter? Because when you do a national conference, let me tell you something, if it's an association, there's a good chance they've got a state chapter. Okay. Now, whether they've got a budget or not, I don't know. Some do, some don't. But I've done, for example, an international conference, and the next thing you know, because I'm thinking locally, because it's in the top of my mind, because I want to work locally, and i got a goal to work locally, I did six chapters. Now, only one in my state, but there were like four in my area, so I could drive maybe to sure. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Kentucky, so I can still get there in a day and back. All those states are close. Yeah. Right. All right. Now, if you do, does this also work for corporations? Like, let's say you worked for a large insurance company, and here's a regional insurance company within three hours of you, and are they going to be all impressed? Okay, if you could do it for the national, then that gives you more cred for doing local. Yeah, so for example, I ended up starting doing some work locally with Deloitte, now, the good and bad news is they're all over the world, so then I got sent nationally. Now, not that I don't want to work nationally, but I'm not looking for national work. If it comes, I take it, and it comes. But my point is I'm trying to keep my percentage of local business like 60 70 80%. Sure. And so I'm targeting those groups. So you, you get the group you want to work for. You target by niche, healthcare. You target by company name. And then you start to figure out who you know that can help you get there. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends and a lot of family. I'm going to tie in. we got a lot of people I know. <laughs> and so I just started thinking, okay, do I know anybody at this company? And lo and behold, I knew a coach who happened to be now working at one of these large companies. I had a friend from college who's working at another company, uh, a guy that was on my staff when I was a resident director working at another company. And all these folks are local. And I just started staying in touch say, hey, do you know anybody at your company that could help me? I'm telling you, I'd say right now, I'd say 50% of my local business has all come through my friends and contacts and college reps and Italian buddies and and just building that relationship. So not only do you want to have a list of companies, you want to have a list of people you know that can help you get to those people. Now, is it a case because it's inherently local? Yes. That it's probably easier to find people that you have connections to at that company because they're part of the community and you're part of the community. Right. So you're, you know, your daughter's soccer coach happens to work for Deloitte or, <laughs> you know. That's you, I mean, exactly right. My son's baseball partner team was at the meeting, uh, the game, I'm sorry, and we're talking. 
And he's saying, so what do you do? I said, well, I do you know, presentation skills coaching. Really? He says, you know, I'm a physician. I've got a bunch of physicians. Man, maybe I should have you come talk to my folks. I said, it's funny, my wife's a physician and I do some work at Ohio State. Oh my gosh, you're kidding me. Boom, I'm in, you see. So now look, I'm not saying you gotta spend hours and hours a week, but here's the secret. 20% of the time each week focused on local business. I mean, if you're local anyways, and, you, and you've got kids, right? Yep. Brian, I know you do. And you're at a game or you're at something, you know, it's just a matter of just striking up a conversation. So what do you do? Here's what I do. The other thing that I want to share with people is use the local media to promote yourself. And you find it's easier to get into local media than oh, international media. big time. So there are two publications. One is you know Business First, which they have in a lot of communities. Uh, another one was Small Business News. So I said, I'm gonna pick one of those two and I want to get a story. So I've been doing some coaching, but you know, again, it was all kind of small potatoes. So I asked my client if they'd be willing to be a part of a story. And then of course I teach media training so I know how to use the media. And I put together a little package and I pitched these two publications. Well, the one publication bit. So I got a wonderful story in my local business publication about coaching. So media is a very important part of the process. Work your local media, newspapers, magazines, trade journals, you know, even association newsletters, company newsletters. When I work for a company, for example, I'll say, hey, do you guys have an internal newsletter? Yeah, we do. Would you mind if I gave you some other tips you can give to all your employees about communication skills or presentation skills? So it's another way to kind of get your, you know, your tentacles in there. And the secret is, like anything else, once you get in there and you work it, it works. And they like it that you're local because then no travel costs. No travel costs. And, I, and let me just tell you up front, I have a local fee. You know, years ago when I started in the business, I met Mike Frank. Luckily, he's in Columbus, Ohio. Great guy. I mean, he... Mm -hmm took me under his wing and said, you know, Donatio, you need to have a fee structure. And I said, great, whatever you tell me, Mike, I'll do it. And again, there's no right way to do it, but this is what works for me. I have a local fee, I have a national fee. Now, we're curious about fees because people talk about fee structure, which right. is really code for different fees for different audiences. Yes. Funny, you like them, and they annoy you, annoy you or you know, whatever. Right. So, of course, since we wouldn't ever reveal any actual fees, but of we're still not. curious you know, here of the slaughtered. ratio. So if your national fee was 15 drachmas. Yes. What type of drachmas would it be for a local fee? You know, it, it could be anywhere from 75 drachmas, 7,500 to maybe, you know, nine. You can pick whatever you like, but mm -hmm. here's the secret. I want to tell my clients, you're getting tremendous value. If I go to California, it's 75 drachmas. But if mm -hmm. you have me stay right here locally, you save on airfare, you save on transportation, hotel costs, and I give a local discount because I love to work locally. So some people don't like that model. They wanna have one fee for everybody and that's okay. But my whole point is my goal is to work locally so I've structured my business to make it easy for people to work with me locally. Now sometimes there are big corporations that actually probably could have paid my full fee. Maybe I'm biting myself. But my philosophy is this, Brian, if I get on a plane somewhere and let's say I cut my fee in half, I'm spending two, three days to go to California and back. Yep. And I cut my fee in half and I'm back home in one day so I'm making money. Because yep. I got three days, I've lost two days. Mm -hmm. I cut my fee in half so I stay home and I cut it in half and I made money. So the idea that you know you have a local feed to me is really making me money. So it's called math. Yeah, exactly, get a calculator okay. <laughs> and you can figure it out. All right. Uh, something else that I really found helpful for me was to figure out how to have what I call leverageable time. Now when I'm booked for a speech, I'm booked for a training seminar, I can't use that time, it's booked. But if I'm booked for coaching and I get asked to go speaking, guess what? I can move that coaching schedule. I have flexibility, so if I'm doing coaching on Thursday and you call me and say, can you speak on Thursday? I go, sure, call my coaching client. I got a little coffee client, change the coaching call, no problem. So now I'm able to leverage my time and make more money because if all you do is speaking and training and you get a call for the 18th and you're booked, 
are you going to do? Too bad, so sad. Yeah, that's exactly right. Another thing that I found helpful for me with local business, and this is true nationally as well, is to change your mentality from next to deep and narrow. For the first 10 years, you know, you get a gig, next, get a speaking engagement, next, next. And so I would do 60, 80, 100 speaking engagements. I do a lot less now. But the point is, I really make almost as much, if not more, because I'm going deep and narrow. So if you bring me into your company, then I'm gonna go a little bit deeper with your company. And I don't say next. And again, locally, it's easy to do that because you can just drive there and come back and go there again. So that's another technique is shift the mentality about how you look at your business. There's a lot of local business, I'll repeat that again. If you look for it, you're gonna find it. I did a program locally for the International Municipal Clerks Association. People that work in different city municipalities who are the yeah. clerks, you know, they, they care all the bookkeeping stuff. Small group. Ironically, two years later, the International Conference comes to Columbus, Ohio at the big convention center. They recommend me. I'm local. They go, man, this guy's local. He's a national speaker. Wow, they booked me to do the keynote and three breakout sessions. Well, four years later, they call me again. And I go to Anaheim, California, do the keynote. I stay in touch. Four years later, I go to Nashville this year, do the conference again. Now, that's not local business, but the point is local business can get you national business, just like national business can get you local business. But the idea is simple. There's business in your own backyard, whether it be 60 minutes away or three hours away. If you target it, if you look for it, if you build relationships in that marketplace and stay in touch with those folks, you're gonna get business. I, I mean, it's inevitable. All right, and now it's time for Platform Power, and we are with Kelly Swanson. And Kelly, I like her. I like your positioning line here. A southern accent, a thousand characters. <laughs> Which character is here today? Oh, no, this is just Kelly today. Just Kelly, You have okay. to pay for the other character. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, the reason we're talking to you, because this is the Platform Power segment, and one of the powerful things you do in your special southern inimitable way is... You do what I understand are customer tributes. Is that how, yes. what do you call them exactly? Yes. Tributes. tributes. I haven't thought of a catchy word yet, but, but for now it's just tributes. Word. Yeah, they customer get it. Tribute. And what exactly is a customer tribute? Well, it's a tribute to them and what they do. And by that, it's, it's kind of my way of telling their story and saying thank you. You know, as a speaker, it was started about me and all my stories and everything I wanted to say. And I thought, well, if I'm going to really motivate them and impact them, I need to somehow tell theirs. But I've never met them before, you know. So I'll hang out on LinkedIn or I'll, I'll research their group and find out what it's like to be a teacher or to be a social worker or to be in whatever profession they are, take the language of their organization and write something that says sort of a thank you on behalf of all those who never told you what value you have and what you bring to the bottom line of your organization and what you bring to the community. And no matter what the topic is that they've asked me to speak about, I work that tribute in and, and they feel like I get it. Well, not only do you get it, but also imagine because you can say things about them that would be weird if they said themselves. Yes. Because you're the outsider providing that yes. wonderful validation and making them feel all warm and fuzzy and want to I can vent for them. Again. So, you know. so this technique, this this tribute technique, you frequently use this as a closer to your keynote. Mm -hmm. You end with this. This is your big finish. That yes. Leaves them like, Whoa. yeah. All right, cool. So um, I ask you to bring an example of this, which we'll do an excerpt from. Uh, which group was this for? Well, the one I chose, uh, I tried to pick the most unusual to show y'all that if you can write one to this group, you can do it for anybody. Uh, pest control workers. It pest was a, control yeah. Workers. Well, the person that booked me was the uh, the chemical company that sells 
chemicals to the pest control industry and these were their customers and they hold these education days and they bring them all in so it was everybody from the small business owners to you know large people in different layers of the organization so everything from the bug guy to the guy who owns the the company all right so univar the big nice yeah. corporation right. with deep pockets who can afford to hire you oh deep pockets oh okay <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. so so they brought you in and uh-huh. so they have Bug folks, pest folks, uh-huh. who are here. So this is the end of your keynote. This is yeah. your tribute to them. Hit us okay. with the pest control people tribute. Okay. Dear John, my guy who sprays for ants in the gray work shirt and the matching pants, who comes once a year to poke around my house and comes right over when I scream mouse, it seems that I have been remiss to think your job was limited to this. Now I will admit... I have thought more than twice. It ain't hard to kill ants and look for mice. Dear John, my guy with the bug on his van, I must confess what a bad customer I am, for somehow I had come to believe that all you do is spray and leave. Ding dong, it's time, is all you say, and I smile and I wave and you're on your way. I don't give a second thought that day to what you did and the role you play. In fact, this never occurred to me what it's like to work in your industry. And so I took a closer look at the toll it must take to work on the Roach Patrol. It must bug you (laughs) to work with customers like me who freak out at the sight of the tiniest flea. It must make you break out in hives when your customers say, you want how much? For what? For a little spray? I can't believe how much you're paid. I can get by much cheaper with a can of Raid. Dear John, you just can't win. Customer service is tough. You're here too much or I think you're not here enough. Peggy Peace wants you to sign this waiver, please, saying you won't hurt the mice, but will set them free. Next door to Mr. Muscle Man Jim, who wants you to help kill them rats and then kill him again. I had a long day. I stood for a whole hour, I'll complain, while you spent the day rolling around a sewage drain. You're in musty, dark crawl spaces all alone, teeming with snakes and dead animal bones, handling poisonous beings and deadly sprays and bait, and I complain because my issue of people arrived late. It's hard work. There are no moments of fun. And if that's not bad enough, you got to clean up when you're done. All the heavy lifting, harmful odors and sprays, getting in and out of the truck all day, standing and bending the backaches and pains, high voltages, combustibles, workers' comp claims. And let's not forget... For everyone who is seen, there are hundreds of others behind the scenes who sell the jobs, who man the phones, who coordinate the visits to my home, who order supplies, cut the checks, dump trash, plan vacations and benefits and handle cash, who develop the chemicals to get the job done, the tools that you need to be number one. Some are inside all day, others never come in. Some are hands-on and in front, others with paper and pen, who market the business, come up with visions and plans keeping up with the changing economy and all it demands. But no matter what the role, when all said and done, success is the work of many and never just one. What happens for me was done by a team. Each one matters, from the one who sells to the one who cleans. To you, this may not be a calling or even first choice in career. It's a job. One winning ticket and you're out of here. Dear John, the bug guy, I'm sorry I never knew just all that went into the work that you do. 
You risk your health and your safety for people like me who think all you do is spray and leave. Nice, nice. So you do this tribute, and what is the reaction? How, how does the audience respond when you basically articulated their world? Well, and... they, they love it, and it's not something you see immediately. You know, when it's comedy, they laugh, and so mm-hmm. you have that measurement. Uh, they just stare with their jaw hanging open is a pretty good sign, and then they come up after you, and they're, you hear it from the client, and they go, oh, my gosh, how did you know? And they love the effort that you go to to, to, to say what they do, and they ask for copies of it. This group went berserk. They loved, I had talked them into filming it, which they weren't going to do. I said, oh, please, you might want a copy of it after it's done. And they were sending it. I said, give it away to everybody who came. And they were sharing it and, you know, taking it back to their offices. And Univar was sending it back to their headquarters. So this is something, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is now a commercial for me. And who knows where that may go. I, um, I did a, a, another tribute for uh, dining staff of Iowa State University. And the, the customer came up to me afterwards and and said, it doesn't matter what else you said beyond that tribute. If all you had done was said that, you would have had them. So a question then is, since this is such a powerful thing, and, and to me what comes across is that this is not so much about humor, that this is about poignancy. Mm-hmm. Both. Both, mm-hmm. really. Because mm-hmm. you can work in the humor, sure. the things they vent about and complain about at work that you've mm-hmm. gotten them to tell you in advance or listen to on LinkedIn. Um, so it's it's that the chance to go, yeah, she gets what it's like to be one of us. So it's, it's humor, poignancy, and, and a catharsis. Yeah. It's like, oh, yes, yes, they get it out. Yes. So, so we see the impact that it has. Uh, but what about on the front end? When you're selling this and you say, and I'm going to end with a tribute, do they go, yes, or yes? Yeah, do they, they get it? The second one. No, they don't get it. And it's it's uh, maybe I'm not selling it right, which is why I love NSA, because eventually they'll teach me how to sell it <laughs> right. But I'll say I'll use that as, and, you know, included in this, say I'm known for my tributes for my audience. And they're like, oh, uh-huh, okay, good. And they just, <laughs> they never even, because I just, but they don't realize it till you go in there and do it. And they're like, wow, I didn't know that's what that was going to be. So so, so it's really the, the key value is like, whoa, that they got this powerful thing that they now want to share with all their attendees. And I imagine the meeting planner or the, the client who hired you, that they're feeling great about you because suddenly all their attendees are wanting a piece of that experience to take with them back to the field, to take with them back to their you know offices or whatever to share with their people. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, oh, well, and it also, it, sorry, no. it also allows you, many people are trying to customize their speeches and they're mm-hmm. they're getting freaked out and they don't have the time. It allows you to deliver the same, I, I try to customize everything, but you can go deliver something like that at the very end of your speech and they will go back and rave about how you customized it when technically you only customized five minutes of it. So you have this uh, short customized piece that kind of covers the whole topic of customization. So it has a much higher customized perception. Yes. You just kind of yes. spread it out like frosting yes. all over your speaking <laughs> cake there. Yeah. All uh, right. Now, so let's say I hear him in VOE land. And I'm going, well, that's great for Kelly with a Southern accent and a thousand characters that we haven't heard. Um, I, I'm not that creative. I, I can't write a fantastic rhyming 
foam sonnet thing. How am I supposed to do something like that? What would you say to those people? And I hear that all the time. And and and, and my first thing to say is, bull, maybe you can't write something <laughs> like I can, but we are all creative. We have, if you just dig a little deep, it doesn't have to be even rhyme. It can be some sort of a story. It can be a song. It can just be a letter that you write to them and talk to them, but... If you have absolutely no skill set in that area whatsoever, then fine. Go find a friend who does it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the beauty of, well, or, not, or even, I mean, there's a lot of us here who are sharing what we know with each other for free. Mm-hmm. And and, and we kind of pile up and somebody say, hey, Kelly, I need a tribute for such and such. Help me on that. And I'll say, okay, now you help me go sell this job over here. You know, and we just kind of work together. So you can find somebody who can help you do that. It's not as hard as it seems. And you probably heard that Kelly is now offering to trade for some incredibly high-value thing that she wants. Yes. She will write and make you look fantastic. Yes, for your list of customers, I will happily write now. <laughs> I'm teasing. She will make you a Southern William Shakespeare if you give her something she wants. <laughs> It's hard to believe this is my final VOE segment as the president of NSA. I've been blessed to visit over 30 NSA chapters in the U.S., as well as speak at the international conventions of our Global Speakers Federation sister associations in Germany, the U.K., Canada, France, South Africa, Malaysia, and Singapore. And I've discovered in my global travels, after having met hundreds of professional speakers, that as different as we are, we really are the same inside. We all want the same things to make a difference, to be happy, and to belong. I call these the three H's, hope, happiness, and hospitality. Let's talk first about hope and framing up in terms of the speaking profession. These past few years of economic unrest have had many of us working harder and praying harder than we have in a long time. And perhaps your enthusiasm, excitement, and energy for speaking may be waning a bit. But I truly believe if ever there were a time that we need strong speakers on a mission to make a difference in the world, it is now. People are looking for inspiration, advice, success strategies, ideas, guidance, coaching, all of the things that you provide. We have to remind ourselves that speaking is a calling to help people. Actually, I'll make that a little stronger. I believe speaking is an obligation to serve our audiences. Bottom line, speaking is about service. That's the mindset we must have when we approach our audiences. We use our words to inspire people to action. The world is hurting and we can deliver optimism, encouragement, and tools to help people make positive changes in the midst of their pain. We provide hope. That hope can inspire someone. That inspiration can motivate someone to action. That action can create a change. We light the fires in the hearts of our audience members with our words, and they go out and possibly make changes. It's our job to provide our expertise eloquently to our clients and audiences so their lives and their organizations improve. How about the second H, happiness? And let's frame this up as individuals. 
When we come to speaking conventions around the world, our main focus is to provide solid education on how to improve your business, and so should it be. But speaking is not just all about making money. If we only focus on running the business, it's easy to forget why we do what we do. And we can lose our happiness about being a speaker. In my travels, sometimes I come across cranky people who are complaining about the economy being bad. And yes, the economy is down and a little fickle, but there are a lot of very successful speakers out there still making a bunch of money. So you have to rediscover your own happiness and the excitement that you have for this business if you want to be successful. So ask yourself, why did you start your speaking business in the first place? Probably because you had a passion for sharing your message. To be successful, you have to maintain that certainty in your message and your belief in its ability to influence positive change for your clients. A lack of passion on your part can result in a lack of business. Speaking is a privilege. As Naomi Rohde reminded us in arguably what is the most famous of all NSA themes today, the privilege of the platform. What a great reminder It is a privilege to stand on platforms in front of others and speak. What an incredible business. It is truly the best in the world. The third and final H, hospitality. I'd like to frame this up in terms of our speaking associations. We tell stories at NSA about how ultra-hospitable Cavett was, so much, in fact, he was known for inviting everyone to join NSA. The running joke was he would tell the taxi driver, hey, man, you should be a professional speaker. So we have to be hospitable and invite people to NSA. And we're not just talking platform speakers here. Many people mistakenly believe speaking is just for keynoters. We conducted a membership survey at NSA and were surprised to find out that only 25% of our members identified themselves as keynoters. Only 25%. Most were trainers, coaches, consultants, and authors. And that's what binds NSA and all the GSF associations together. We have one common mission to serve professionals who use the spoken word. We're not really selling a speech. As keynoters, trainers, coaches, consultants, facilitators, authors, all NSA members use their expertise to help clients. They ultimately deliver their knowledge to an audience, face-to-face or virtually. No matter what we sell or how we communicate our expertise, A passion for the spoken word is the common thread woven between us. And I don't really care how you do it. Webinars, videos, training, it doesn't matter. We want every expert who uses the spoken word to present content to an audience for a fee to join us. I invite 
all members of every GSF country to open their arms and invite everyone they meet who meets these qualifications, who uses the spoken word, to join them. We all want to feel like we belong and we're included. And NSA can provide this spirit of belonging, this hospitality. It connects the spirit of our members to the spirit of the association. At NSA, we have a term for this, the spirit of NSA or the spirit of Cavett after our founder, Cavett Robert. We willingly share our secrets with our competitors in the spirit of creating better opportunities for speakers around the world. This is NSA. In closing, I wish every NSA member and every member of GSF associations tremendous success personally and professionally. Thank you for the opportunity to represent you around the globe as your president this year. It has blessed me immeasurably and is indeed a privilege. Every month, VOE is closed with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, communication, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. This month, the topic is grocery store aisles. I was reading an article by Martin Lindstrom, author of the book Brandwash, Tricks Companies Use to Manipulate Our Minds and Persuade Us to Buy. In it, he described a visit to the control room of a consumer research center. Now, analysts were watching video screens from cameras placed in grocery store aisles specially prepared to influence shopper behavior. Now, he quoted the technician breathlessly giving a play-by-play report. Take a careful look at this lady, he said, pointing to a middle-aged woman pushing a grocery cart. She's about to enter our speed bump area. It's designed to have her spend 45 seconds longer in this section, which can increase her average spend by as much as 73%. The technician called this, I kid you not, the seduction zone. Fascinating. But what was most fascinating to me was how they got the shopper to slow down. They put in special parquet wood flooring in one part of the aisle. You see, normally a grocery cart silently speeds along on the linoleum. But when crossing onto parquet floor, it creates a clicky-clacky sound with the wheels. And without having to be told, shoppers instinctively slow down until the sound goes away. And in this case, as our shopper slowed down, she glanced over and saw the tower display of Campbell's Soup right there and selected a can. Then, as soon as her cart was off the parquet flooring, she sped up again. This got me thinking, what kind of platform craft provides slowing down cues for our audiences? Cues that will place them in our seduction zones for considering new insights. I came up with three. Provide contrast by selectively slowing down our rate of speech. I know, duh. But first, let them know the speed bump is coming. We can do that by stepping up to the front of the stage, turning our body slightly, and leaning forward towards the audience almost conspiratorially. Then follow that up by speaking not just slower, but softer with an intense stage whisper. This is our equivalent of the clicky-clacky sound. The softer, slower, raspier tone is an auditory cue that will unconsciously cause the audience to lean forward and listen more attentively. They will place themselves into our seduction zone. Now, perhaps they will mentally spend 45 more seconds with their ideas and increase their application of them by 73%. Who knows if that math is directly applicable? But what could it hurt to try? 
Well, that's it for this month and for my tenure as your VOE host. This has been the most rewarding volunteer activity I have ever done. So I'd like to say thank you to Laura Stack for entrusting this role to me and to David Newman, my point-counterpoint producer, and to Rocky Heyer, our great editor and mixer, who makes it all sound good. And thank you to all the NSA members who generously shared their stories and insights on VOE so we could build on their successes with our speaking businesses. But remember, it doesn't have to end just yet. Check out our VOE Extended Edition by visiting NSA VOE on Facebook. And I hope to see you in Indianapolis. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.